Welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ, located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and these podcasts are taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. We pray that they will bless you, and we would love for you to come visit us and make our church home, hopefully, become your church home. Here's what we have for today. Thank you for the reading. Good morning, everyone. All right. So I don't, well, last year is a long time to remember, but uh, last year we had a great time, well, I think anyway, coming through both the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer in sort of like a late summer uh, into uh, autumn sermon series. We did two. We, call it, we did the one called Credo, and then we did the one on the, the Lord's Prayer, where we taught our way through both of those and, and saw what we can learn from those. Uh, today, what we're going to do is as we uh, finish, uh, as we begin September, uh, as we uh, continue on through the end of summer into the beginning of autumn, we're, I'm going to be doing a new series um, as we move towards Advent called um, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And one of the most beautiful aspects of scripture is we get a multifaceted display of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes there's one aspect of Jesus that gets magnified so much so that everything else becomes, uh, becomes distorted. It's this image of the meek and mild Jesus, right? We do have, you know, the, the meek and mild Jesus, and Jesus even does say, the meek will inherit the earth. But we have in our minds, many of us, a, a picture of Jesus who loved everyone so much he never had a bad thing to say about anyone and was never judgmental and was always affirming whatever what was going on around him. But the reality, though, is different. Even though Jesus was love and is love and showed love, Jesus also made a whip <laughs> at one time and he drove merchants out of the temple. Jesus chided his disciples for their unbelief. Jesus called religious leaders out on their hypocrisy. Jesus challenged everything and everyone. And as we heard in the reading, he even said things that made his own followers abandon him. In our own day and age, the, one, the way one builds a brand is by trying to attract people by connecting them with something they need but they don't have or make them think that they need and they need, they need to have to make their lives better. And so we're always trying to attract, attract, attract. So in our, on our, <laughs> in our efforts to try to attract, oftentimes the more difficult aspects, of especially our faith, can kind of get mitigated. And so what we're going to do is in this series, we're going to try and see a more well-developed, fuller-formed picture of Jesus that resists all of our efforts to pigeonhole him or to force him into whatever box is the cause du jour. So join me as we begin our new series, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And we're starting today with what I think is the hardest saying of Jesus in the entire Bible, in the entire Bible. And it's especially appropriate given today what we just heard read. We're going to be fed at the Lord's table. And it's a hard saying that's divided Christians for a very, very long time. There's a story. Some people say it's historically accurate. Some people say it might be an embellishment. But the story goes, the two reformers, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, they meet together, I think, at a town called Marburg 
for a colloquy. They're meeting to discuss their, their differences and their areas of agreement, right? Two, two very famous reformers. And they agree, they're like, hey, we can agree on pretty much everything. But all of a sudden, the last item for discussion is what do we believe about the Eucharist? What do we believe about Holy Communion? And it was so important to Luther especially that he, in the story, he took his shoe, right? And he pounded it on the table and he screamed in Latin over and over and over again, the words of the institution, this is my body. This is my body. So this very, very difficult saying is here in the reading in John chapter six. And it's this particular one. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true, true drink. I think this is by far the most difficult thing Jesus ever said in the entire Bible. So we're going to look at that a little bit today. So all four Gospels have in them the story of the Last Supper. But only Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the institution of the Eucharist in there. So they all have the pattern, right? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says, Jesus, take the bread. He broke it. He blessed it. And he gave it to them, followed by him taking the cup and giving it to them. However, the Gospel of John does not contain this part of the story. So this has led some people to think, well, John doesn't really care about communion, or, or, or that's not something that he's focusing on. But many theologians and scholars basically consider that what we've just read, what we just heard read in John 6, to be John's account of the institution of the Eucharist, of Holy, of Holy Communion. And St. John places it here in this part of the narrative because he's tying it in with some important ideas found in the Hebrew Scriptures. So at the beginning of the chapter, in chapter 6, Jesus has just performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. The crowds had followed him because he had been healing the sick. And while sitting on the mountain by the sea during the time of Passover, the text tells us, right, Jesus feeds them miraculously. And what do they try to do? Well, we know in the story they try to make him a king. They try to make him a king by force. And so he leaves and he crosses the sea, and we know the story of him walking on the water. But the crowds follow him, right? They all get in their boats too, and they cross the sea, and they find Jesus on the other side. And they're all looking for him, but Jesus makes this observation in chapter 6. You're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They're not following him because they believe in him or because they want to follow him as disciples. They are following after him because of what they think he will do for them, for what he will give them. And there's a whole movement of Christianity revolving around this, that, this idea that if we follow Jesus, he will give us what we want. But that's not why we follow. And they respond with, well, what sign will you do so we'll believe you? Also, our forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness. So picture the audacity of that statement, right? <laughs> that, that's pretty audacious to say that, right? So Jesus has the day before in front of 5,000 people, well, even just as 5,000 men. So who knows how many women and children were there too. He's fed thousands of people with five pieces of bread and two fish, right? An amazing sign in 
their presence. The next day, they say, well, show us a sign, and then we'll believe who you, who you are. Then we'll be really believe in you if you do us a sign after just having received one. So Jesus counters, and he says, God gave you bread from heaven, but the true heavenly bread is he who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. And so they ask for that bread. This should kind of make us think of also later on the story of the Samaritan woman at the well who asks for the living water. Jesus says, if I give you this water, you drink it, you'll never thirst again. And so like that, and she says, give me this water. Jesus says, I'm the living bread. If you eat it, you will never die. And the people are like, well, give us, give us this bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will not hunger or thirst. But even though you've seen me, you don't believe in me. And so they respond with, who does this guy think he is? How can he say he's the bread from heaven? I knew his parents. <laughs> I knew his mom and dad. How could he be the bread from heaven that's going to give life to the world? And Jesus replies to their grumbling by saying things like, I'm from the Father. I've seen the Father. Those he gives me will have eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna, but they all died. I am the living bread from heaven, and those who eat will live forever. So the previous gift of manna, though good and a gift of God, was pointing to something to come, something more potent and life-giving. Because unlike manna, this bread doesn't just satisfy hunger. This bread will make one live eternally. So if you were there, and Jesus said, basically, eat my flesh, how would you respond? Probably like they did. How can this man give us his flesh to eat. And that's when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. Notice how his, some of his own disciples responded. This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And sadly, the text ends with, after this, many turned back and no longer walked with him. So we understand, right? Jesus had more than just the twelve. He had, large, he had a group called the 70. And then there are other people who would also follow. Scripture tells us that were, there were actually even a group of women that would follow and provide for them out of what they had. There were more than just the 12. And a large group of people, after hearing Jesus say this, they said, I'm out. See ya. <laughs> I don't understand this. This is weird. I don't get it. I'm leaving. See you later. So part of what makes this difficult to understand is why Jesus didn't clarify, right? So if he doesn't really mean eat my flesh and drink my blood, or if he meant them to understand it as an analogy that only refers to spiritual eating and drinking, then don't you think he would have said something to them to that effect? So kind of in response to this hard saying, we're left with three options that I'm going to give you today that I think provide a broad summary of how Christians have understood this. And I think all of them have strengths and weaknesses. So the first one is trying to understand this hard saying of Jesus. People have turned it into something that is symbolic. So because of the difficulty of Jesus' words here, I'm, I'm taking and I'm compressing a lot of development in history, right, in order to preach a 20-minute sermon this morning. We could probably trace this back to uh, one of the reformers named Zwingli. And in the text, we heard uh, Jesus 
going back and forth on eating and drinking, but then also linking that concept of eating and drinking with the concept of believing. So in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him on the last day. And in verse 47, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Okay, well, eating and drinking means believing. But then there are other verses that talk about eating and drinking. Verse 51, I'm the, bread, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, they will live forever. Verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So you can see how someone interacting with these texts could come to define the part speaking of eating as believing. But we can't just leave it there because Jesus himself in the text doesn't say that they are the same thing. He uses different words. But we should remember, and this is probably one of the strengths of just understanding this as a symbolic act, is that believing is an essential part of our approach to Holy Communion. And this was Zwingli's take on it, that it serves to enhance and deepen the faith of those of us receiving. And I don't think that that's wrong here. The focus here is we need to believe. However, the downside to seeing it as just mere belief, as a symbol, is that it negates Jesus' words linking eating and eternal life. If Jesus just meant believing, then there's nothing offensive, there's nothing difficult about this saying. And symbolic memorialism is the point of view for many churches today, especially ones that don't hold to any historical confessions. It's something we do to obey, and it helps us remember what Jesus did for us, but there's nothing really beyond that. It can be an assurance for us, but there's really nothing else to it. That would be a symbolic way of understanding that. It has some strengths and some weaknesses. The second way that we have tried to understand the hard saying of Jesus here is by understanding it spiritually. If the symbolic attempts to deal with the hard saying of Jesus in eating his flesh by understanding it through believing and faith being reinforced, then the spiritual understanding attempts to deal with this hard saying by not excluding the symbolic, but, but focusing on there being a real spiritual aspect to it. The reformer Calvin wrote, when bread is given as a symbol of the body of Christ, we must immediately think of this. As bread nourishes, sustains, and protects our bodily life, so the body of Christ is the only food to invigorate and keep alive the soul. When we behold wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must think that such use as wine serves to the body. The same is spiritually bestowed by the blood of Christ, and the use is to foster, refresh, strengthen, and exhilarate. Calvin does believe in symbolism in the Eucharist and Holy Communion, but he also believes that it does confer real spiritual benefits. For him, there's a particular focus on sealing and confirming God's promises to us of forgiveness and of eternal life. He writes this again, that sacred communion of flesh and blood by which Christ transfuses his life into us, just as if it penetrated our bones and marrow, he testifies and seals in the supper. And that not by presenting a vain or empty sign, but by their exerting an efficacy of the spirit by which he fulfills what he promises. So I think these are the most important points for Calvin, that the strength of this view is it recognizes there's more going on than just a mental memorial. Our faith can be invigorated. It can be nourished because Holy Communion is pointing those who partake towards eternal life. It's... it's it's the ceiling. 
Calvin himself wanted also weekly communion in his churches, but he was unable to do so. But however, the Lutheran church did keep that practice, and it's been the practice of most of the church since the beginning of the church. The last one we're going to talk about today, I'm going to call the realist or the real presence. So we've talked about the symbolic, we've talked about the spiritual, and the strength of weaknesses of both. Let's end off with understanding it through what I'll term the realist or the real presence. And I call it realist or real presence because I didn't want to use the word literal because it's not, I don't think the, the word is effective or, or accurate here in describing it because when we talk about realist, it understands the word is as is, right? We're not Bill Clintoning this. Is means is, right? <laughs> eat and drink is eat and drink. I should probably edit that out of the audio, but I probably won't yeah. before I post it. Before I do, though, it's important to note that the problem with the ways in which we try to understand Jesus' words in John 6 have more to do with trying to figure out the mechanism of what's happening rather than accepting the mystery of it. So I think a lot of the problem that we've had in, in churches in general is, is instead of accepting it as a gift of God's grace, as understanding it, right, in air quotes, as a mystery, we try to figure out how it works. We try to break it down and figure out how does this actually happen? If it's truly Christ's body and blood, why does it taste like bread and wine? Why doesn't it taste like flesh and blood when we eat it? It still feels like bread. When I chew it, it chews like bread. When I drink the wine, I still have the sweetness of the wine, and there's a little bit of alcohol in there, and it smells like wine. It doesn't taste like blood. So in, in trying to figure all of this out, I think focus shifts from receiving it as a mystery and trying to figure out the mechanism by how it actually works. Right? And so probably the best way of, of uh, probably the best example of that mechanism being explained is, is in Roman Catholicism, their theology of transubstantiation, right? And transubstantiation tries to explain that fact. How can the bread and wine still look and taste like bread and wine, but in fact actually still be transformed into Christ's body and blood. We're not going to get too much into that, but that's kind of trying to, I use that as an illustration to how people are trying to figure out the mechanism of what's happening. So, it's important to note that that understanding is used in their theology because of the belief that Christ is truly present in the bread and the wine. So, where I'd like to try to land the plane, dock the ship, is not with the symbolic, not with the spiritual, but what we'll call the realist or the real presence. And I think that this is the unquestionably Christian belief from the earliest days. The, the scholar Kelly, he wrote this in his book, Ancient Christian Doctrines. Eucharistic teaching, it should be understood at the outset, was in general unquestioningly realist i.e. the consecrated bread and wine were taken to be and were treated and designated as the Savior's body and blood. Right? So Christ is truly present. This is what Christians have believed from the beginning. We don't know how. We don't know the mechanism. All we know that in the bread and in the wine, we are somehow feeding on the body and blood of Christ. Jesus, just as Jesus said in John 6, 
he says, if you do not eat my flesh, if you do not drink my blood, you do not have life in you. And I think the problem here, brothers and sisters, is we take all of the scriptures that talk about justification by faith, which we believe and affirm. We are justified by faith, right? We are made right with God by faith. But then we have these sayings over here where Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life in you. And we try to figure out, well, we try to pit those verses against each other, and whatever side of the spectrum you fall on, <laughs> you're going to major on one of those sides. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. And that's generally kind of how it works. But those, these passages, they're not meant to be fired at each other. They're meant to be understood complementary. St. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, Consider not the bread and wine as mere elements, for they are the body and blood of Christ. Judge not the matter of taste, but from faith be fully assured without misgiving that the body and blood of Christ have been vouchsafed to thee. So he basically says, listen, taste doesn't matter. But notice here, there's also this aspect of believing, but from faith be fully assured without misgiving that they have been given to you. So in other words, we know Christ is there his body and blood are there, even though it looks and tastes like bread and wine, so we receive it by faith. We don't know how to explain it. We don't know how it works. We don't know the mechanism. We do know is that when a few minutes, when I stand up here and I ask for the Holy Spirit to, be, to come upon us and then to come upon the elements of the bread and the wine, all we do know is that we will partake together. We will be spiritually and physically feeding on Christ. And as we do, we are continually being forgiven, sanctified, and nourished. And that, brothers and sisters, is, I think, the best way how we understand the, the very difficult saying of Jesus that caused many of his disciples to fall away. Is I think that that's the best way to understand that. And, and when we talk about it as a symbol, yes, we affirm some of those ideas. Is it something spiritual happening? Yes, something is spiritual happening, but we can't just leave it there. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave us his body as food and his blood for drink, be all glory together with the Father who is from everlasting, and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. I normally don't do this, but... As I was thinking about the sermon that I preached on Sunday, I felt like there were a few things that I wanted to talk about, but I just didn't have the time for, so I wanted to address those in this quick little addendum to the sermon. So we talked a lot about Holy Communion, the Eucharist, and I spoke a little bit about the symbolic, the spiritual, and what I called, for fun, you know, the realist or the real presence and how Christians should affirm the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, that Christ is truly present, and we don't know how, we just know that he is. And so I was thinking to myself, well, okay, if that's true, then what does that mean for us? <laughs> well, I think that that means for us, the first thing is that it is holy. It is holy, and so it should be treated as holy, it should be treated with the reverence and the dignity and the respect due to it. And that means we should come 
with our hearts prepared. We should come aware of how we fall short, aware of our sin, but also aware of God's great mercy and God's abundant love and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And also, it should also make us think about what actually is happening when we're receiving the body and the blood of Christ. So if Christ is truly present in the bread and in the wine, then that means that something is really given to us, not just a seal of assurance or something like that, but we are somehow receiving Christ. We are somehow mystically, there's something going on there. Something is being transmitted to us. And I believe that like we read in, in, in St. John's Gospel, is life is being given to us, eternal life, because Christ said so. So as we eat the bread and drink the wine, the life of God is flowing into us and is being given to us. And if this is the case, brothers and sisters, and it is, then that would mean we should be doing this as much as possible. That means that like almost all of Christian worship through most of history, we should be celebrating the Eucharist weekly. This should be a weekly occurrence. There is no Christian worship for a, the larger portion of church history where <laughs> there's no, when you look back on history, most of Christian history, service has been focused around the Eucharist, around Holy Communion. And so we should come weekly to the Lord's table to receive the life that he imparts and that he gives to us. And then that also means, brothers and sisters, then that the, the communion isn't something that we just do by ourselves at home as part of like our private prayer practice. I know that's kind of getting popular lately, people going home and having self-communion at home. Um, and there is no, <laughs> there's no commute, communion um, with the body of Christ apart from the body of Christ. You know, we take communion. We are, we are joined with one another as the church is Christ's body. As we come then to receive that nourishment from the bread and the wine, his body and blood, we can only experience that together as a community. And I'm not talking about people who can come, uh, like, like shut-ins or people who are extremely ill. You know, the church has always had, you know, the deacons and, and ministers who would go and bring communion to them. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who try to do communion at home as part of like a personal practice. You cannot commune with the body of Christ apart from the body of Christ. Anyway, just a couple of thoughts I wanted to add on there. I didn't get a chance to on Sunday. I pray that that sermon blessed you, and I pray that everything that uh, we post up here will continue to bless you as you continue to listen. God bless.